Chapter Eleven of Tales of a Traveler by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Poor Devil Author, Part One. I began life unluckily by being the wag and bright fellow at school, and I had the farther misfortune of becoming the great genius of my native village. My father was a country attorney, and intended that I should succeed him in business. But I had too much genius to study, and he was too fond of my genius to force it into the traces. So I fell into bad company, and took to bad habits. Do not mistake me. I mean that I fell into the company of village literati, and village blues, and took to writing village poetry. It was quite the fashion in the village to be literary. We had a little knot of choice spirits, who assembled frequently together, formed ourselves into a literary scientific and philosophical society, and fancied ourselves the most learned philos in existence. Every one had a great character assigned him, suggested by some casual habit or affectation. When heavy fellow drank an enormous quantity of tea, rolled in his armchair, talked sententiously, pronounced dogmatically, and was considered a second Dr. Johnson. Another, who happened to be a curate, uttered coarse jokes, wrote doggerel rhymes, and was the swift of our association. Thus we had also our popes, and goldsmiths, and Addisons, and a blue-stocking lady, whose drawing-room we frequented, who corresponded about nothing with all the world, and wrote letters, with the stiffness and formality of a printed book, was cried up as another Mrs. Montague. I was by common consent the juvenile prodigy, the poetical youth, the great genius, the pride and hope of the village, through whom it was to become one day as celebrated as Stratford-on-Avon. My father died and left me his blessing and his business. His blessing brought no money into my pocket, and as to his business it soon deserted me, for I was busy writing poetry and could not attend to law, and my clients, though they had great respect for my talents, had no faith in a poetical attorney. I lost my business, therefore, spent my money, and finished my poem. It was the pleasures of melancholy, and was cried up to the skies by the whole circle. The pleasures of imagination, the pleasures of hope, and the pleasures of memory, though each had placed its author in the first rank of poets, were blank prose in comparison. Our Mrs. Montague would cry over it from beginning to end. It was pronounced by all the members of the literary, scientific, and philosophical society, the greatest poem of the age, and all anticipated the noise it would make in the great world. There was not a doubt, but the London booksellers would be mad after it, and the only fear of my friends was that I would make a sacrifice by selling it too cheap. Every time they talked the matter over, they increased the price. They reckoned up the great sums given for the poems of certain popular writers, and determined that mine was worth more than all put together, and ought to be paid for accordingly. For my part, I was modest in my expectations, 
and determined that I would be satisfied with a thousand guineas. So I put my poem in my pocket and set off for London. My journey was joyous, my heart was light as my purse, and my head full of anticipations of fame and fortune. With what swelling pride did I cast my eyes upon old London from the heights of Highgate. I was like a general looking down upon a place he expects to conquer. The great metropolis lay stretched before me, buried under a homemade cloud of murky smoke, that wrapped it from the brightness of a sunny day, and formed for it a kind of artificial bad weather. At the outskirts of the city, away to the west, the smoke gradually decreased until all was clear and sunny, and the view stretched uninterrupted to the blue line of the Kentish hills. My eye turned fondly to where the mighty cupola of St. Paul's swelled dimly through this misty chaos, and I pictured to myself the solemn realm of learning that lies about its base. How soon should the pleasures of melancholy throw this world of booksellers and printers into a bustle of business and delight? How soon should I hear my name repeated by printer's devils throughout Paternoster Row, and Angel Court, and Ava Maria Lane, until Amen Corner should echo back the sound? Arrived in town, I repaired at once to the most fashionable publisher. Every new author patronizes him, of course. In fact, it had been determined in the village circle that he should be the fortunate man. I cannot tell you how vaingloriously I walked the streets. My head was in the clouds. I felt the airs of heaven playing about it, and fancied it already encircled by a halo of literary glory. As I passed by the windows of bookshops, I anticipated the time when my work would be shining among the hot-pressed wonders of the day, and my face, scratched on copper or cut in wood, figuring in fellowship with those of Scott and Byron and Moore. When I applied at the publisher's house, there was something in the loftiness of my air, and the dinginess of my dress, that struck the clerks with reverence. They doubtless took me for some person of consequence probably a digger of Greek roots, or a penetrator of pyramids. A proud man in a dirty shirt is always an imposing character in the world of letters. One must feel intellectually secure before he can venture to dress shabbily. None but a great scholar or a great genius dares to be dirty. So I was ushered at once to the sanctum sanctorum of this high priest of Minerva, the publishing of books is a very different affair nowadays from what it was in the time of Bernard Littop. I found the publisher a fashionably dressed man in an elegant drawing-room, furnished with sofas and portraits of celebrated authors, and cases of splendidly bound books. He was writing letters at an elegant table. This was transacting business in style. The place seemed suited to the magnificent publications that issued from it. I rejoiced at the choice I had made of a publisher, for I always liked to encourage men of taste and spirit. I stepped up to the table with the lofty poetical port that I had been accustomed to maintain in our village circle, though I threw in it something of a patronizing air, such as one feels when about to make a man's fortune. The publisher paused with his pen in his hand, and seemed waiting in mute suspense to know what it was to be announced by so singular an apparition. I put him at his ease in a moment, 
for I felt that I had but to come, see, and conquer. I made known my name and the name of my poem. I made known my name and the name of my poem, produced my precious roll of blotted manuscript, laid it on the table with an emphasis, and told him at once, to save time and come directly to the point, the price was one thousand guineas. I had given him no time to speak, nor did he seem so inclined. He continued looking at me for a moment with an air of whimsical perplexity, scanned me from head to foot, looked down at the manuscript, then up again at me, and pointed to a chair, and whistling softly to himself, went on writing his letter. I sat for some time waiting his reply, supposing he was making up his mind, but he only paused occasionally to take a fresh dip of ink, to stroke his chin or the tip of his nose, and then resumed his writing. It was evident that his mind was intently occupied upon some other subject, but I had no idea that any other subject should be attended to and my poem lie unnoticed on the table. I had supposed that everything would make way for the pleasures of melancholy. My gorge at length rose within me. I took up my manuscript, thrust it into my pocket, and walked out of the room, making some noise as I went, to let my departure be heard. The publisher, however, was too much busied in minor concerns to notice it. I was suffered to walk downstairs without being called back. I sallied forth into the street, but no clerk was sent after me, nor did the publisher call after me from the drawing-room window. I have been told since that he considered me either a madman or a fool. I leave you to judge how much he was in the wrong in his opinion. When I turned the corner, my crest fell. I cooled down in my pride, in my expectations, and reduced my terms to the next bookseller to whom I applied. I had no better success, nor with the third, nor with the fourth. I then desired the booksellers to make an offer themselves. But the deuce an offer would they make? They told me poetry was a mere drug. Everybody wrote poetry. The market was overstocked with it. And then, they said, the title of my poem was not taking. That pleasures of all kinds were worn threadbare. Nothing but horrors did nowadays. And even these were almost worn out. Tales of pirates, robbers, and bloody Turks might answer tolerably well. But then they must come from some established, well-known name, or the public will not look at them. At last I offered to leave my poem with the bookseller to read it and judge for himself. Why, really, my dear Mr. Uh, I forget your name, said he, cutting an eye at my rusty coat and shabby gaiters. Really, sir, we are so pressed with business just now, and have so many manuscripts on hand to read, that we have not time to look at any new production. But if you can call again in a week or two, or say the middle of next month, we may be able to look over your writings and give you an answer. Don't forget the month after next. Good morning, sir. Happy to see you any time you are passing this way. So saying, he bowed me out in the civilest way imaginable. In short, sir, instead of an eager competition to secure my poem, I could not even get it read. In the meantime, I was harassed by letters from my friends, wanting to know when the work was to appear, who was to be my publisher, 
but above all things warning me not to let it go too cheap there was but one alternative left i determined to publish the poem myself and to have my triumph over the booksellers when it should become the fashion of the day i accordingly published the pleasures of melancholy and ruined myself excepting the copy sent to the reviews and to my friends in the country not one i believe ever left the bookseller's warehouse the printer's bill drained my purse and the only notice that was taken of my work was contained in the advertisements paid for by myself i could have borne all this and have attributed it as usual to the mismanagement of the publisher or the want of taste in the public and could have made the usual appeal to posterity but my village friends would not let me rest in quiet they were picturing me to themselves feasting with the great communing with the literary and in the high course of fortune and renown every little while some one came to me with a letter of introduction from the village circle recommending him to my attention and requesting that i would make him known in society with the hint that an introduction to the house of a celebrated literary nobleman would be extremely agreeable i determined therefore to change my lodgings drop my correspondence and disappear altogether from the view of my village admirers besides i was anxious to make one more poetic attempt i was by no means disheartened by the failure of my first my poem was evidently too didactic the public was wise enough it no longer read for instruction Quote, they want horrors do they said i in faith then they shall have enough of them End quote. so i looked out for some quiet retired place where i might be out of reach of my friends and have leisure to cook up some delectable dish of poetical hell broth i had some difficulty in finding a place to my mind when chance threw me in the way of canonbury castle it is an ancient brick tower hard by mary islington the remains of a hunting seat of queen elizabeth where she took the pleasures of the country when the neighborhood was all woodland what gave it particular interest in my eyes was the circumstance that it had been the residence of a poet it was here goldsmith resided when he wrote his deserted village i was shown the very apartment it was a relic of the original style of the castle with panelled wainscots and gothic windows i was pleased with its air of antiquity and with its having been the residence of poor goldie quote, goldsmith was a pretty poet said i to myself a very pretty poet though rather of the old school he did not think and feel so strongly as is the fashion nowadays but had he lived in these times of hot hearts and hot heads he would have written quite differently End quote. in a few days i was quietly established in my new quarters my books all arranged my writing desk placed by a window looking out into the field and i felt as snug as robinson crusoe when he had finished his bower for several days i enjoyed all the novelty of change and the charms which grace a new lodgings before one has found out their defects i rambled about the fields where i fancied goldsmith had rambled i explored mary islington ate my solitary dinner at the black bull which according to tradition was a country seat of sir walter raleigh 
and would sit and sip my wine and muse on old times in a quaint old room where many a council had been held all this did very well for a few days i was stimulated by novelty inspired by the associations awakened in my mind by these curious haunts and began to think i felt the spirit of composition stirring within me but sunday came and with it the whole city world swarming about cannonbury castle i could not open my windows but i was stunned with shouts and noises from the cricket ground the late quiet road beneath my window was alive with the tread of feet and clack of tongues and to complete my misery i found that my quiet retreat was absolutely a show-house the tower and its contents being shown to strangers at sixpence a head there was a perpetual tramping upstairs of citizens and their families to look about the country from the top of the tower and to take a peep at the city through the telescope to try if they could discern their own chimneys and then in the midst of a vein of thought or a moment of inspiration i was interrupted and all my ideas put to flight by my intolerable landlady's tapping at the door and asking me if i would quote, just please to let a lady and gentleman come in to take a look at mr goldsmith's room end quote. if you know anything what an author's study is and what an author is himself you must know that there was no standing this i put a positive interdict on my rooms being exhibited but that it was shown when i was absent and my papers put in confusion and on returning home one day i absolutely found a cursed tradesman and his daughters gaping over my manuscripts and my landlady in a panic at my appearance i tried to make out a little longer by taking the key in my pocket but it would not do i overheard mine hostess one day telling some of her customers on the stairs that the room was occupied by an author who was always in a tantrum if interrupted and i immediately perceived by a slight noise at the door that they were peeping at me through the keyhole by the head of apollo but this was quite too much with all my eagerness for fame and my ambition of the stare of the million i had no idea of being exhibited by retail at sixpence a head and that through a keyhole so i bade adieu to cannonbury castle mary islington and the haunts of poor goldsmith without having advanced a single line in my labors End of chapter 11 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida